thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, your go to show for all things science, technology, and medicine. I'm Chris Smith, and this week, the science questions you've been sending in are the subject of the show, including why don't whales and dolphins drown when they go to sleep at sea, assuming they do, of course, how a fungus from a nuclear reactor could help patients undergoing radiotherapy, and do magnets around your water pipes really prevent limescale building up? Plus, when the whistle goes for half-time, we will have a quiz for the team that you can have a go at too. No, I'm delighted to introduce the panel we have with us to answer your questions this week that you've been sending in. Tom Ireland is a science journalist. He's also editor of The Biologist, the magazine of the Royal Society of Biology. And he's recently published a book. It's called The Good Virus, The Untold Story of Phages. I've been reading it, Tom. It's absolutely smashing. It's really beautifully written. It's a really, really fascinating account. But people won't know what we're talking about until you tell us what a phage is and why this matters. Yeah, so a phage is simply a virus that infects bacteria. So it's a microbe of a microbe. And of course, most people will think uh, of viruses as things that make us ill and kill us. But the vast majority of viruses out in the world are viruses of bacteria and other microbes. So they're actually really important in terms of keeping bacterial populations under control. And this surprisingly old idea of using them in medicine mm. um, is once again being taken really seriously. Will you open the book when you, with the account of, of the Russians using them in the war and they're going and grabbing victims in the trenches of cholera mm. and you think, well, there's a risk of catching cholera but they were after the, the bacteriophages that were in those people who were dying of cholera because they had phages there that could potentially protect other people. Yeah, so these... Viruses, phages are absolutely everywhere, but if you're looking for a particular phage that treats a particular condition, the best place to look for them is where that nasty bacteria is. So during the Second World War, um, there were reports of Soviet scouts going out and stealing corpses of German soldiers that had died of cholera, bringing them back in, and then using that to brew up a cocktail of these viruses, which they could then use on their citizens, on their soldiers, and protect them from, from the cholera epidemics that were sort of encircling Stalingrad. There's even stories of people queuing up for, for lines of bread and not, not being allowed their bread until they'd been phaged. <laughs> so they'd got their dose of viruses to protect them from cholera. Yeah, the Soviets used phages for, for decades because they didn't have a consistent supply of antibiotics. Thanks, Tom. It's, it's a really well-told account if you want to read Good Virus, The Untold Story of Phages. It's, it's out now, isn't it? That's it's out now, yeah. Also with us, Liberty Denman is a marine biologist and she has a particular penchant for sharks, but she's going to tell us later on all about whales and dolphins. You also have a podcast and it's called Out of Our Bubble. So what bubble is it that you're talking about? 
Well, with absolutely all puns intended, I'm referring to a common habit of, I mean, as marine scientists, but also I'm sure some of the other panellists here might agree, in fact, all scientists, we have a bit of a habit of talking amongst ourselves. And given a lot of the research and work that people are doing, the wider world should probably hear about it. So it's about engaging with those much further outside of our space. And with Out of Our Bubble, I'm particularly trying to reach an audience that wouldn't otherwise engage in the marine space at all. So it's starting with any topic you like from the very beginning. So it's actually a reverse podcast where the people that come on ask the questions and I have to try and answer them, which always makes a fun and games because it's across all different topics. Um, and we've just almost finished the first series, which has been on fishing, touching on all different types of fishing. So the guests, are they experts themselves? So they're asking you really damn hard questions or are they members of the general public challenging you to tell us why they should care, I suppose, about certain elements of marine biology? So, yes, it's it's the total opposite of having experts. It's absolutely anyone who's happy to come on and ask questions because I realise a lot of science communication, science material out there often comes in at a higher level than what most people may have, purely because everyone has their specialty and it's not always science. And so to no one wants to feel stupid and, you know, oh, that's the first question I would ask. I can't, there's no follow-up questions you're able to ask if you don't know anything from the very beginning, Phage just being a perfectly valid example <laughs> of that. So you need to know where to begin with and this is what it's all about, is encouraging that conversation. Obviously then it develops as soon as people start asking questions. You then, I find myself going, oh, I'm, I'm starting to get out of my depth now. Like, have oh, have wow. you had any real stinkers because I got when we first started making the naked scientists the best question anyone ever sent me was how many organs can I donate and still remain alive <laughs> Which I thought, absolutely brilliant uh, it was at the time of the financial crisis and I thought well they, this is someone sense. who's seeking to capitalize on their internal assets yeah. isn't it maybe pay a few debts <laughs> have you had any equivalents to that I haven't, other than a sort of, let's call them innovative ideas. I, I actually did the first episode with my best friend because I thought, if I can't reach her, what hope do I have with anyone else? <laughs> she had an absolute... We were talking about trying to remove um, plastic from the ocean in the sense of abandoned, lost and discarded fishing gear. And she came up with the fantastic idea of just popping a bin bag on the back of every vessel that's out of sea and just doing it as you go, which I thought, well, don't, I mean, don't knock it till you try it. sounds, people are... <laughs> seriously investigating mm. ways of, of go, surfing around scooping stuff up aren't they because of all those gyres where the oceans mix and you get a vortex where there's tons of this stuff accumulating one scientist told me there's enough plastic there to get to the moon and back a couple of times you're absolutely right yeah there's um huge garbage patches accumulating in different places around the world because of currents and then as a result, we're thinking, well, do we just leave it? And as you said, some people are actually, um, or organisations rather, are actually going around and trying to remove it. Then it comes down to the technology of, of is it worth it? Because then if you have huge vessels emitting a huge amount of carbon emissions going around to pick up the plastic, you've got that cost-benefit analysis. But there's all sorts of different emerging tech that people are using as well to try and deal with it. Thanks, Liberty. With us as well this week, Phil Broadwith. He's the business editor at Chemistry World, which is the Royal Society of Chemistry's monthly magazine. Uh, and... Um, Speaking of which, you've got a story in there about an amateur chemist. He's got a suspended jail sentence for conducting science experiments in his garden. What was he doing? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a guy called Gert Myers, and he, uh, he's, ha he's, he's been a hobby chemist for a very long time. We interviewed him a number of years ago for a feature we did about hobby chemistry. He used to have a company that would sort of supply chemicals to mostly to hobbyists, but sometimes to small, medium companies, whatever. There's a whole community of people doing chemistry experiments at home and at various different levels. There's a difference between your kind of kitchen chemistry set and then you go up, up and up and up to... I mean, this guy, in the end, he had not great amounts, less than a gram, 
of a chemical sodium nitrate, which you could use to make explosives. He wasn't probably making explosives, but you need special licenses to have some of the stuff that he had, and he didn't have those licenses. He'd been in trouble a little bit before. His company had been closed down in 2017. So, I mean... I, I'm a really big fan of home chemistry exper- experimentation, but it's absolutely crucial that you have at the forefront of your mind, is this safe? Is this, you know, what, how, what am I going to do if this goes wrong? How could it possibly go wrong? Doing all of that risk assessment. What am I going to do with the waste at the end? All of those things. It's perfectly possible to do some really cool chemistry at home, but you've got to just not take it quite that far. Are you a fan of David Hahn? You know who he was? No. David Hahn goes by the nickname, or did, I think he's died now, Radiation Boy. <laughs> oh, is and he this the guy is that the was guy making... who, at the age of 16, had a fast breeder reactor, reactor in his garage. And um, he made it. He, he took all of the americium from smoke detectors that he bought. Yeah. He found sources of gamma rays in old radium paint. And he, he, he worked out off the internet a whole heap of physics that enabled him to make his own fast breeder reactor. But he said, he's quoted as saying, I got rather nervous when I started having a Geiger counter going off in my bedroom quite some distance away. Yeah. And he then tried to bury the products of his reactor and the FBI, I think, came and caught him at the roadside, <laughs> and he was arrested. But um, that takes home physics, I suppose, to quite considerable levels. Tom? There's also an amazing story of a DIY biologist who tried to gene edit himself, so he had enormous muscles, which is sort of exactly like the, <laughs> Did <it laughs> the, incredi- work? the Incredible Hulk. Uh, he he live-streamed on Facebook and in- injected himself with this CRISPR gene editing thing, which was apparently to knock out the gene that restricts muscle growth. It didn't work. But uh, it was pretty scary watching it at the time. Uh, there have been some fatalities from people trying this kind of thing, not because the gene editing perhaps killed them, but because poor technique and, and other accidents. Yeah, there's been some actually quite tragic cases of people trying to create their own kind of genetic medicines and not really knowing what they're doing. Eek. <laughs> on that thought and on that note, uh, we also have with us Rosie Wilby. Now, Rosie is an award-winning comedian. She's also an author and a podcaster. Her podcast is called The Breakup Monologues, which is also the title of the new book that you've just brought out. Is that right? You get, they go they both go by the same name. Yes, the clue is in the name. It's all about that very universal experience of heartbreak. We've all had a breakup at some point, either a romantic breakup or a friendship breakup or a professional breakup, or maybe you've experienced all of those types of endings and we all can feel pretty rubbish at the time. But the subtitle of the book is The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak because I found many, many people who have found joy in reinventing themselves and the transformation and growth and healing that can happen after adversity. You've reinvented yourself quite a lot though, haven't you? Because I was looking at your biography. (laughs) You went to York University. What did you study there? Well, I studied electronic engineering. And so I I was a scientist back in the day. And so science has crept back into my comedy shows, even though I escaped and fled rather into the the arts world. And um, yeah, I've always been interested in science. And I think my parents had a bit of a fantasy that I might be a science teacher because they worked in education all their lives. But there is a sort of educational aspect to the show that I've done. The book and podcast follow a trilogy of shows where I was investigating the science of love and relationships. And I suppose I'm all about making it really super accessible and not talking in the jargon that some of the real boffiny scientists might. But I'm desperate to pursue this a little bit because before you did that, Mm. you were a singer. 
Yes, I've been a singer-songwriter. I had an album out uh, on my own label when people were just starting to do that and the internet just started to be a, a thing and everyone's web address used to end with freeserve.co.uk. <laughs> you had one of those as well. <laughs> and we all had dial-up. and uh, Yeah, in fact, I worked at a magazine where all the music listings were sent in by fax, which was exciting. Terrific. <laughs> people won't know what I'm talking so how, about. How did the comedy come about then? Well, you've got to laugh about things, haven't you? <laughs> I think what really happened was when my band all broke up and I went solo as a musician, I was telling funny stories between the songs because I thought I might want to fill things out a bit. Well, because... you didn't have enough material. That... Well, I... <laughs> well, I just thought, do they really want to see another sort of miserable woman with a guitar singing bleak songs of heartbreak? And a lot of people did, especially when they, <laughs> I would then sort of make fun of myself in between with very sort of bleak stories about my tragic life and, and bad luck in love. Um, so, yeah, a new career was born somewhat accidentally, but then the best things in life often are. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. What a story. So Rosie's here and she will be talking to us later on a bit more about the science of love and the science of breakups. There is the team we have assembled for you. Let's uh, dip into the ocean with you first, Liberty, because I've seen a lot of reports over the last couple of months, but it seems to have intensified recently. This is the story of the orcas, which appear to be pursuing boats in the med. Now, tell us a bit more about the background to this. When did it first start happening? And do do we have any idea why it's happening? Well, this is a very hot topic now, as you say. And I must be honest, I'm not entirely sure how long it's been going on. But I do know that it has started increasing uh, in frequency as well. And I think we are safe to say that short of being an orca, we cannot 100% say what the reason is. The current assumption from experts around the world have been saying that Quite simply, that they're playing and having fun, as all mammals, us included, do. They like to have fun. The problem is they're having fun by ramming boats and removing rudders from them, which tends to result in them sinking, which, even being the hardest of nails, you might want a change of underwear after that with a, with a large pot doing that. So I can understand the fear from it, but the general assumption is they are playing. There are a few conspiracy theories that have come out after it, which I think always grabs the attention, doesn't it? I mean... We've had a, if you look back historically, we haven't had a fantastic relationship with the species, us being the perpetrators. There's been no recorded kills of orcas on humans in the wild. But unfortunately, obviously, we have had them captive and unfortunately still do in some places. And they're very emotional creatures and they also have incredibly good memories. And when they are in the the wild and they live in pods, they're matriarchal, which means they sort of learn uh, from the female figures, and it's often their grandmothers that they that they learn the most from in the pods, and they yeah they provide the teachings really. And as a result, one of the sort of conspiracy theories is that this one particular orca female grandmother orca had a poor experience with the sailing boat and then decided to sort of teach the others uh, within the pod and then others as well to basically start doing this. As I said, I'm I'm convinced that that's probably not not the best case scenario, and the assumption as I said is that they are in fact just playing and having fun, but we don't know. Is it true that there was one particular orca who started sort of wearing a dead fish on its head, and then all the other fish in the area, all the other orcas in the area, started copying it? Is this, uh, this example of kind of orca culture that spread across a, a huge because dolphins region. do that with sponges, don't they? In, yes. in Australia, there's a, a sponging population of dolphin that put these mm. sponges on their noses to they ostensibly do. protect their noses when they're going ferreting through the mm-hmm. subsurface. I mean, all of this really tells you that ultimately cetaceans, these whales and dolphins, 
know how to have fun and, and they enjoy doing this. And they are also incredibly emotional creatures. The way that they actually have a more extensive brain than ourselves and have the ability to experience and process emotions to a greater extent than we do, which is also why, sort of going back to the slightly less fun side of it, the captivity side, is that you can hear quite literally in their communications and their clicks that they are deeply unhappy also with that culture as well there are different obviously there's different pods and it goes goes across cetacean species that they all have a slightly different dialect sometimes um, and communicate in different ways so yeah it, they have sort of communities in the same way we do as well we have a lot to learn don't we thank you very much You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And this week it is a Q&A special where we pose the questions that you've been sending us. And if you'd like to get in touch, it's chris at thenakedscientists.com. Tom Ireland is a science journalist and also editor of The Biologist. He's the author of Good Virus, The Untold Story of Phages. We'll find out a bit more about bacteriophages and antibiotics later in the programme. Liberty Denman, you were just listening to there. She's a podcaster and marine biologist, so she'll answer your ocean-related questions. And Phil Broadwith, who is the business editor at Chemistry World, is a chemist and will hopefully help us with this question I've got coming up for you in a second, Philip. Um, and also with us, Rosie Wilby, who is an, an award-winning comedian and a podcaster and an author behind the breakup monologue, so she'll talk to us about the science of love. This is a question from Neil for you, Phil, who says, do water conditioners prevent limescale formation? And if we may add to that this question of those gadgets you can buy in magazines that strap around your water main that say they'll cut down how fast the pipes fur up, is there anything in that apart from snake oil? OK, well, there's there's two things here. There's There's magnetic devices, which... I think I can fairly safely say if they're outside of the pipes, do next to nothing. They might wiggle some of the... But you've got ions dissolved in the water, so you've got charged things moving. Charged things that move have a magnetic field associated with them. So there is certainly probably some kind of interaction between the magnet and the ions moving. Whether that stops them furring up your pipes, I don't think that that's true. But uh, what I think Neil's talking about in this question is something called a water conditioner, which is slightly different to a water softener. So I'm just going to quickly go through what those two different things are. Um, A water softener uses kind of resin, and it's the same kind of thing you might have in a jug in your kitchen or like plumbed into your house what hard water is caused by minerals in the water calcium carbonate and it's the calcium particularly that's the problem if you take the calcium away which is what the ion exchange resin in those filters does and replace it with sodium you end up with something that doesn't then form limescale so that stops you from making limescale so that's that's a kind of chemical reaction it's an exchange you take the calcium away and you replace it with sodium but the problem with that is you can't then really drink the water it's got too much sodium in it you you become high blood pressure high (laughs) blood pressure you know it causes all sorts of other problems so you have to have a separate water tap if you have a softener plumbed into your thing it's quite funny to to not tell people that if you if you have a guest over at your house and you see what the reaction is and see if they comment on the water and if they come from London and they've been drinking Thames tap water, then inevitably they often say, actually, the water tastes better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what Neil, I think, is talking about is something called a water conditioner, which is slightly different. It's the same kind of idea. We're going to change the chemistry of the water slightly to stop it making limescale. Instead of exchanging the ions, instead of taking the calcium out and putting sodium in... It puts into the main pipe something that has a, z- a block of zinc in it and some other- and some brass, 
And as the water flows through, it dissolves the zinc into the water. So you end up with zinc ions, and that encourages the calcium to... to it still forms a scale, it still forms a solid, but it's a different form of calcium carbonate. When you do get limescale, it's softer, so it doesn't kind of plate so much onto your kettle or your shower, and it's easier to clean off. So the, the pressure of movement through a pipe, for example, should dislodge it. Yeah, I mean, so I ha- I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of results of of, of like furring up in pipes. But what are the, one of the tests that they do with these things is take some of the water that's been treated, get an immersion heater, stick it in a bucket of water, run it for six hours at seventy five degrees, and then dissolve off all the scale and see how much calcium is stuck to that immersion heater element, and. If you take water that hasn't been treated and water that has been treated, the water that has been treated has about a quarter as much scale on the element after that test. Thanks very much, Phil. Uh, We're answering your science questions that you're sending us this week. And um, Rosie, I've got one for you. Paula says, people suffering with heartbreak um, are shown on brain scans to activate the same neural pathways as those people who are living with an addiction when they go into withdrawal, for example. So does this mean that there's science that underpins the, the phrase love is a drug? I think it was Brian Ferry that, that sang that, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Love is the drug. Great song. And there's actually an anthropologist, Helen Fisher, who's done an immense amount of work into the stages of love when we go through lust, love and attachment. And in fact, there are different chemical states of the brain that are attached to these different stages. And they're very distinct, separate stages. So it does actually mean that being a human being, having a monogamous lifelong relationship is pretty challenging because you can be in love with one person, in lust with another and attached to another one. So <laughs> it makes marriage and monogamy quite quite challenging and tricky. And so, indeed, we do become so attached to our partners as we get longer established into a relationship. We are releasing these very addictive opiates and we are quite literally, as, as Paula mentioned, suffering a withdrawal when that person is suddenly removed from our lives, particularly if you're the person who thought the relationship was going along swimmingly and the other person has maybe dumped you by email like I was many, many years ago, although I, I joke you're that. Not, I, you're not still sour about it at all, Not at you? all, I not at all. you've really got moved on. No, we, we, like to, we like to sort of joke, laugh at ourselves about the breakups and the way we respond to them and not sort of have a goodies and baddies and heroes and villains. And I do joke that I felt much better once I'd corrected her spelling, which was actually fine but it's more a joke about my own pedantry um and i did change the font as well wingdings was far preferable um one of my friends um who i work with failed a medical exam and she said she actually said she felt like she'd been publicly dumped when she got the results of the exam because it's like a personal affront but it's, it's I, I wonder therefore if if our love for our subject and the things we we do a lot as well as other being in love with other people whether subjects work the same way and our yeah. hobbies and so on. Oh, definitely. I mean, anything that we become attached to. And what I've been particularly fascinated in is how the relationships that don't even get started are some of the ones that we become the most attached to. And if you visit the Museum of Broken Relationships, which is in Zagreb in Croatia, not in Split, which would have been brilliant, um, <laughs> some of the exhibits that have the most sort of heartfelt dedications next to them are the ones where, where somebody maybe met somebody and... They thought they were amazing. That was the person for them. But no relationship actually actually really happened. It's like this sort of unopened Christmas present full of potential that never gets explored. You never take the rose-tinted glasses off.
So, uh, best breakup story on the breakup monologues? Oh, well, there have been so many and I'd love people to listen to the podcast. But there was a very dramatic one from a friend of mine who her boyfriend went off on his bike after she had dumped him and he was involved in an accident. And when she got to the she hospital... Given, she apologised for loosening the wheels now. <laughs> When she got to the hospital and all his family were there, nobody knew that she had broken up with him. And when he so awoke from his coma, he'd forgotten that she'd broken up with him as well. And so she had to stay with him for a little bit longer. (laughs) That's a great story. Does this mean, also, Paula goes on to say, could we combat rejection in in the love world in the same way that we treat people who have drug addictions then? Well, what's really interesting is something that I have done episodes about and written about in the book is the area of research um, that a neuroethicist I know is looking into and into the idea of love drugs and anti-love drugs, which would either help us to stay in a relationship, drugs like MDMA, which before it became outlawed as a rave drug, were used in couples therapy, and drugs like SSRI antidepressants, which could be used as a sort of anti-love drug, which would help you sort of unattach, uncouple from perhaps an abusive partner, which you, who you don't want to sort of feel this real sense that you must stay with. Phil? It's kind of interesting that you mention MDMA there because we just had the news, I think, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, Australia has started or has enabled the use of MDMA and I think psilocybin from magic mushrooms for various mental health conditions. So it's it's quite interesting to see that kind of circling back in, in, in lots of different ways. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was the end of June, the regulator in Australia uh, allowed the use under certain conditions of those two agents, ecstasy and psilocybin. It's it's quite good literature, though, supporting their use in people with really profound depression states where they appear to get really quite good benefit from using them. The interesting thing about ecstasy is that um, Merck, the drug company, invented that in about the early 1900s, around the time of World War One. They were looking for drugs that would suppress hunger among troops and they gave them a load of ecstasy and then discovered they didn't want to fight anymore. So they said, this one's not very good. We'll have to, we'll have to look, look, look again for that. Mm. Let's move to you, Tom. We mentioned at the beginning of the programme that there is this idea about possibly using fungi to help patients undergoing radiotherapy. You've actually written a, a piece in The Biologist about this. Just, just tell us the story. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, so in uh, the 1980s, there were scientists working in the destroyed reactor cores at Chernobyl, where absolutely nothing grows, except they found several species of sort of black mould-like fungi growing on the walls where the radiation levels were just absolutely off the charts. And these fungi weren't just managing to survive in there, but they seemed to be kind of thriving. They were growing towards the most powerful radiation and the further tests even suggested they were kind of u- using the radiation as an energy source in, in a similar way to how plants use sunlight to grow. And this is all down to melanin, which is this amazing family of pigments that sort of protect us and mammals and, and all kinds of animals uh, and all kinds of species from UV radiation. And this seems to be completely central to protecting the fungi from these crazy levels of ra- radiation and actually helping them use it to their advantage so as well as just being very exciting research there's this idea that you could use these fungi and melanin to help protect people from radiation so for example when they receive radiotherapy you could have some kind of agent that contains 
a special form of melanin that's able to protect the rest of the body from the radiation. And the scientists are also looking at how this could be used to protect people in space, so making spacesuits from melanin or making buildings on a Martian colony from this fungi so it grows itself and it's radioprotective. That would be a cool idea. Um, and one of the scientists who's involved in this research, the starting point is to make little tiny melanin space helmets for mice. <laughs> what, for the same reason? <laughs> and bombarding them with radiation to see if these little uh, you know, astronaut helmets protect them from radiation. The most fascinating story I heard about life and radiation, I interviewed, it, it was a while ago now, about 10 years ago, a lady, I think she was at the University of Indiana, called Lisa Pratt. And she had been working with people going deep down gold mines in South Africa. And they had discovered in one of these mines a pool of water, which you could prove by looking at the composition of the water, had not been in contact with the world mm. for up to 120 million years. Mm. But what was extraordinary about this pool of water is it was thronging with bacteria. And if you've got a bubble of water that hasn't had any contact with the outside world for 120 million years, but there's life flourishing in it, you have to ask the question, well, what's it feeding on? Mm. must be eating something. And when they unpicked this, they realised that there are, in those rocks, enormous numbers of uranium atoms which are breaking apart radioactively, spitting out these alpha particles, radiation. This is busting apart water molecules and making them into a reactive form of water, which was then attacking minerals in the rocks and liberating sulphur compounds that a, a whole group of bacteria could then consume. Mm. And in turn, those bacteria would feed other bacteria and so they had a whole community of microbes all surviving because of radiation in the rock and their argument is well if they can survive down there you know kilometers underground living off uranium there's no reason why they couldn't have similar life processes going on in in planets elsewhere in the solar system and beyond and that probably tells us quite a lot, lot about potential ways that life started on earth as well where there wasn't much organic material around to eat and Absolutely. these kind of strange ways of making energy and growing were probably the ways that life got started in the first place. Isn't nature an extraordinary thing? The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. It's the Naked Scientist Q&A special where you ask the questions and we hopefully have the answers. With me are biologist Tom Ireland, marine scientist Liberty Denman, chemistry writer Phil Broadwith and comedian Rosie Wilby. But before we take on more of your questions, it's time to test your mettle and our panel's true power in our Naked Scientist quiz. This time we're marking the 75th birthday of the UK's National Health Service with a medically themed series of ward rounds. Team one are going to be Tom and Rosie. Team two, Philip and Liberty. And Phil, you have been a quizzer with you've been a quizzer with us before, and I do sense you're just a tiny bit sore about losing last time. I'm not sore. No, but we definitely didn't win. You didn't win last time. You said you did send me an email afterwards to complain about one of the questions, but you weren't sore or anything. It was all fine. So let's go to round one, which is the rest is NHS history, it's called. And team one, Tom and Rosie, here's your question. Europe's first ever liver transplant was performed here in Cambridge, would you believe? But what year did that take place? Was it A, 1968, B, 1974, or C, was it 1980? What do you think, Tom and Rosie? 
Well, they're not that far apart, oh, those on, options, are they? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I know people were experimenting with transplants a long time ago, so I'm going to, I would go with the early, the earliest one. Yeah. Right. Um, what was the, the later one? 1980-something? 1980 sounds late. What was the yeah. earliest one, please? <laughs> 68. Okay. I know you would... It's going to involve I mean, a they, lot of... They probably didn't do a great job, to be fair. No, I it reckon might have been they a disaster. Had a go. Yeah. They might have found out why they need another 20 years of research to <laughs> yes, do it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, was it just the first one, a first successful one? Yeah. Well, Jen, amazingly, three years ago on this programme, we interviewed Angela who is now living in France. She is the world record holder for longest surviving transplant, not of a liver, but for a kidney, also done by Sir Roy Kahn, who taught oh. me when I was a medical student. And when was that? And, and, and <laughs> she is now at 53 years after her kidney transplant and therefore the longest surviving transplant recipient with the same working graft. Isn't that amazing? You think she was, she was in really mm. bad way in, in her early 20s when she was transplanted. And, and absolutely yeah. outstanding. So what do you think the answer is? 1968, 1974 or 1980 for the liver transplant? I've lost faith in my original argument then, but should we just go in the middle? Okay, it's always a good... That's what I always do. <laughs> going, I don't got an A in physics 19, A level from doing 17, that, to be fair. Four, and the answer is... <laughs> You oh. get a cough, I'm afraid. It's it's not the um, right answer. 1968, Professor oh, Sir Roy Kahn at Addenbrooke's Hospital else? did the first liver transplant in Cambridge in oh. Europe in 1968. So mm. that's null point for you oh. from our jury. So close. Team two, Philip and Liberty. <laughs> Which groundbreaking drug became widely available on the NHS in 1961? Was it A, paracetamol? Was it B, aspirin? Or C, the oral contraceptive pill. What do you think? Oh, God. I feel like aspirin and paracetamol are a lot earlier than that. Aspirin, certainly, that's Bayer in the like late 19th century. I'll take your word for it. While um, I'm wildly competitive <laughs> and want to win, I've got absolutely none of the medical knowledge to back this up. Paracetamol, oh, I think it might... So, 1960s is like the start of the freedom of whatever. I feel like it freedom might... Freedom of whatever? <laughs> Get Rosie in here. Being about sex, basically. Well, yeah, no, I'm talking about women's liberation and kind of contraception and and all of that kind of thing. I was going to say that would probably be the only educated guess I could have attempted. That would have been the film. I feel like, I mean, that's that's Carl Jurassic kind of era. But so, what do you think the answer is then? Aspirin or contraceptive? I'm going to go contraceptive pill. Going for the contraceptive pill, and you get a. It's looking good this time, Phil. You, you, you never know, you might redeem yourself. <laughs> it's early days, it's early days. <laughs> Don't speak to so soon. Tom and Rosie on nil point. Philip and Liberty so far on one point. Over to round two. Round two between a vaccine, a rock and a hard place. Do you see what we did there? <laughs> vaccine, a rock and a hard place. Your question, in 1958, the NHS, Tom and Rosie, introduced its first mass vaccination programmes. Were they for polio and diphtheria, measles and mumps, or yellow fever and typhoid? What do you think? Ooh, I think um, polio and diphtheria is always told as one of the great success stories of vaccination. Um, mm. I imagine yellow fever is something that may have been uh, developed when people started travelling to more exotic places later in the century. I would say the first one, but I don't know if... Polio. Polio, yeah. You going yeah. polio? And that was the other one, measles and mumps, for in 1958. Yeah, go polio. Go on. You're off the. You're off the. <laughs> off the blocks. <laughs> I've got to get this right. 
Yeah, you, yeah you, you guys are under, under pressure now, right? Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, it is indeed polio and diphtheria, uh, off the back of Salk and Sabin's amazing vaccines that have gone on to save millions of lives and, and prevented enormous amounts of ill health from paralysis. In 1999, Philip and Liberty, the UK became the first country in the world to vaccinate against what? Was it hepatitis B, meningococcal disease, which causes meningitis, obviously it's the bacterial infection that causes meningitis, or chicken pox? 1999, the UK was the first country to vaccinate against what? Hep B, meningococcal disease, or chicken pox? What do you think? You know what? This is a very rogue piece of information, but... 1999 happened to be the year I was born (laughs) and I'm pretty positive I know the answer to this one purely because it felt like I needed a few random pieces of information so that when it came to a pub quiz and this is this is my moment I hope I've got it right now I've said all this but I am fairly convinced that it's meningitis. Meningococcal. Yeah, well, yes. That's what I was going to go for as well. Yeah, because, that's what they all say. <laughs> so because, so, before you go for meningococcus? Yeah, yeah, confidence yeah. there, I feel like. Go yeah. for meningococcus. Yeah. And it would be absolutely right, and your recollection of university is right as well, because the way they did the study, this is meningococcal meningitis C, they recruited a whole load of students going to Freshers' Week events and they followed them across the whole of Freshers' Week to see what the baseline rate of carriage with meningococcal infection is because a a small minority of people in the population naturally carry this infection. And we think that close personal contact is how it spreads and that some people catch it who are also vulnerable to it and it then gets into a place it shouldn't and causes meningitis. So they then tracked the students through Freshers' Week and all these discos, and they showed there was a paper in one of the medical journals showing a positive correlation. The more parties and the more discos they went to, the higher the risk <laughs> of acquiring meningococcal infection. So uh, the the vaccine group did not acquire any infection, and that was it was so obvious that there was a, a stark difference mm-hmm. between the pickup rates. I mean, something like two thirds of the students oh, had wow. it by the end of Freshers' Week in terms of carriage, wow. compared to the vaccine group people weren't picking it up so it was it was so obvious the difference that it was immediately just fast track through but anyway you're quite right to cite university so one for you as well well done uh, so you've got two and the other guys are on one so you've got to got to stay in the game to team team one round three round three is called anatomically speaking tom and rosie and uh, your question is the funny bone we see we thought of you rosie being a comedian and all this the the funny bone is no laughing matter it isn't a bone either, but what's its proper name? Is it the whimsical nerve, the ulnar nerve, or the vagus nerve? I thought I knew this, but I'm not sure now. I think the, I'm no anatomist. I've never cut anyone open, you'll be pleased to hear. But I think the vagus, vagus, yeah. vagus nerve is central, I think, and is right. to do with the nervous system. Uh-huh. Um, the first one, the whimsical nerve, sounds made up. That sounds really made up. And, that's, the, that's and right. the bone here is the ulna, so I'm going to go with ulna nerve. Yeah, I think I think ulna. That sounds. You're going nerve. for B, ulna nerve. And, 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 and yeah. you would be right. It, it is indeed the ulna nerve. This supplies the lower half of your hand, including your your fourth and your your um, index and um, littlest finger. And it runs down your arm, winding its way round the elbow. And when you bash your elbow, you pinch the nerve against the bone and you then send all these volleys of nerve impulses up and down the nerve, which is why you get the funny symptoms and the the weakness that you get. And hence it gets called the funny bone. Ah. It's not a bone, it is indeed a nerve. Well done, you get a point for that. So you're on two. And Philip and Liberty, over to you. Laparoscopy, we want to know, is more commonly known as what? Is it A, cataract surgery... 
B, vascular surgery, or C, keyhole surgery? Oh, I had to check that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was just listening to those, and I was like, as soon as you said keyhole, I was like, that's what I thought it was. And I think I think we both had the same reaction. I went, yeah, I think that's what it is. So, so either we're both completely wrong, or we're going to go Again, with... Again, the group confidence. Yeah, do it. I think, yeah, quick answer. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Nice. It, was, it was keyhole surgery. This is also called minimally invasive surgery or sometimes band-aid surgery. Do you know, anyone know when it was first performed? Rough guess? Probably earlier than you'd like to think about, I feel. Um, <laughs> I remember covering the Da Vinci machine, which was, oh, that's probably... Uh, that's a robot, though, That's isn't it? a big robot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was probably decades before that. A little bit. It, it, it may surprise you to know, 1901 was the Whoa. first keyhole mm. surgery. Dimitri von Ott um, inspected the abdomen of a pregnant woman. I think we therefore have a winner. Yes. To, <laughs> to <laughs> liberty, you have got three points. Three from three. Well done. Three out of three. You are this week's Naked Scientist. Big brains of the, of the week. We'll give you a round. Well done. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And this week we're answering your listener questions with the help of our panel, who are biologist Tom Ireland, marine scientist Liberty Denman, chemistry writer Philip Broadwith and the comedian Rosie Wilby. Let's go to this question for you, Liberty, which is this person says, I saw on TV that animals in shallow water go to sleep in and around the coral so they don't get eaten. But what do fish and whales out in the open ocean do when they want to go to sleep? And indeed, what do dolphins and whales that would normally be air breathing, what do they do so they don't drown? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. And sleep is a really interesting one because in in the marine world, especially because there's kind of lots of different degrees of sleep to an extent, uh, especially that and that's different between different species, almost all of which is quite different how we do it. So obviously, as humans, when it's dark outside, we have uh, what we would call a pineal gland, which releases a hormone called melatonin, basically means as soon as it gets dark, our body goes quite like to go to sleep now. Um, And we obviously tend to do that by shutting our eyes and having a lie down, depending on the person. Um, Fish don't have eyelids, um, so they tend to sleep with their eyes open when they do. And a lot of the research detailing around sleep actually is sort of based on behaviour rather than, you know, tracking their brain movements in the same way we would for for humans. And as you said, coral reef uh, fish... Don't um, don't all actually need to swim to breathe because they have this thing called the operculum on their gills and they can flush water over their gills and therefore can basically just have a little rest on the bottom and, and hide in the coral or wherever else to stay away from predators. Larger fish out in the open obviously have a very different situation. So to stay on fish for a second, those tend to be called obligate ram ventilators, which means they have to be moving through the water to breathe. And that means if they're ever sleeping or resting, they have to be constantly moving. And this is very difficult to understand. So the research is quite thin on the ground, but the assumption is that sort of they tend to just slow down their swimming, sort of face into the current, the water flow over and just enter a sort of a relaxed state. Could drown them if you pulled them backwards through the water? In theory, yes. Obviously, their gills are how they get the oxygen through in um, from the water into their system. And they're very, very delicate. So 
uh, yes, going backwards through the water wouldn't move the water across the gills in the way that's required. So, yes, that would essentially ruin, well, ruin a fish's day, for want of a better <laughs> phrase. Um, but that's obviously, again, a bit different for um, mammals. So like the whales and the dolphins, as you were talking about, because they obviously breathe air. And they also, we have a better understanding of their sleep patterns because we've had them in captivity again. So what happens is basically these at least toothed cetaceans, the whales and dolphins, will sleep with one side of their brain at a time, typically shut off sleeping with the opposite eye awake. And that tends to base this sort of unihemispheric sleep is assumed to allow for the observation of predators, things getting in the way, just staying aware of the fact they need to breathe. <laughs> so they're sleeping under the water, the, the whales, mm. so they don't have to sleep somewhere where, where yeah. their blowhole can have access to the air. Yeah, so there's different types of sleeping. So there's also, they do things like catnaps. <laughs> so like dolphins, for example, will literally sort of be cruising along the surface um, and then they can breathe that sort of every 30, 40 seconds for comfort purposes. But again, for the whales being underwater, they also have, they can hold their breath for an incredibly long time and dive to incredible depths, especially the sperm whales because they um, hunt in the depths and eat giant squid. So they can hold their breath for a lot longer and it actually, it reduces their heart rate and their breathing weight slows it down um, and therefore or they can just stay under for longer, basically. I did read that one of the other things that some of these marine active mammals do, like yeah, seals as well, mm. is that they change their dream sleep. When we go to sleep, part of our night is spent dreaming and mm. part spent in a really deep sleep. And apparently when they go to sea for hunting purposes and feeding and so on, they suppress the amount of time they spend dreaming and or they spend a bit more time uh, with with one of these phases disabled and then when they come back ashore they compensate and reset mm. things so they, they don't have the same sort of even balance that we do so they, they change their way of sleeping when they go to sea as well as doing what you're saying turning on and off one side of their brain alone yeah and dreaming is such an interesting thing to think about as well because obviously here we're talking about whales and fish and and actually, things uh, species like octopus, cephalopods, they also, we've been tracking dreaming in them and how they, they change their colour and the texture of their skin as if they're experiencing things, which shows that they are, they are in fact, dreaming and they have, um, yeah, incre incredibly extensive intellectual capability, basically, and something that we aren't really appreciating until now until we're documenting this. So the dreaming side is really fascinating. Thanks, Liberty. Donald is asking us, and this is one for you, Tom, and, and probably also Philip, does the heat sensation from capsaicin, which is the spicy stuff in chilli peppers, cause the same response in the body as actual heat? In other words, is there any potential in your intestines, for example, if you eat lots of chilies, to, to be really genuinely burned, or is it just a sensation? So, Philip, first of all, tell us you tell us the chemistry. What is the difference between food that's spicy and food that's piping hot? And then we'll perhaps come to Tom. OK, so... As far as I can understand it, capsaicin and other hot compounds like the allicin that's in the sulfur compounds in hot things like wasabi and mustard all activate exactly the same receptor in your body as responds to temperature. That's something called TRPV1. I'm not going to go into the long name, but it's the same receptor. So the same thing in your body that is responding to changes in temperature is also responding to this chemical stimulus. And after that, everything physiological is exactly the same the degree of activities you know how how painful is it um chilies there's different ways of kind of experiencing chili if you just take chili out of you just cook with a chili fruit you're going to get a certain amount of chili depending on how hot the chili is they're measured on a thing called the scoville scale which originally was basically how much do i have to dilute this stuff in a sugar solution until i can't detect the heat anymore but now it's directly correlated to an actual physical amount uh, of 
of capsaicin. And and chilies range from zero, which is your kind of bell peppers, up to a few million, which is your California reapers and your gold, pe- you know, ghost peppers or whatever. Probably best not to eat them. You can get chemical burns from eating these chilies, right? They can physically harm you. But if you take the membrane of the chili and extract the capsaicin out of it and get pure capsaicin, that has a Scoville rating of 16 million, which is a lot. And eating that definitely will cause you problems. <laughs> a friend of mine used to work on the pain system in the body and he used to use pure capsaicin in the lab. And he said he went for a wee one day and it must have had some on his fingers. He said it was the best lesson in washing your hands. <laughs> Before you go to the lavatory yep. that you're ever going to get. And the people have said to me as a virologist, they say you can always tell the person who works on herpes in the lab because they always wash their hands before they go for a wee. What do we know about the, the physiological effects of, of chilli in the body? Does it do harm? Is it good for you? Tom, anything you can tell us? Yeah, so as Phil said, this is essentially sort of setting your alarms off that there's dangerous heat or abrasive damage to your tissues when there isn't. So you get all the physiological responses that's trying to flush this stuff away. So you get your mouth fills with saliva. This is if you're eating it, of course. And your nose and your eyes start to stream and you can get similar effects at the other end of your digestive system (laughs) as well. So in a sense, your body's responding as if there's some kind of dangerous heat in your mouth. But because there isn't actually any, you know, burn damage or abrasion to your flesh, you don't get the inflammatory response that you would get if you were actually seriously burnt. But what happens when you have these really extreme chilies where the, they've been bred to have these Scoville units in the millions is actually the pain is so intense that you start getting these really horrible symptoms that can feel almost like you you are experiencing some terrible damage. I've seen a video of my friend at a chilli pepper festival, <laughs> which started off quite funny, but he soon starts to feel really unwell and overwhelmed with pain and he's sort of unable to breathe and the you know the ambulances are called and stuff and it's really unpleasant but again that's just caused by the pain itself there's not actually any burning going onto his mouth nearly as painful as when you break up with a long-term partner (laughs) rosie tell us about your tour because you've got a tour embarking it's going all over the place including cambridge that's right we start in cambridge this sunday at the junction and we're recording two live episodes then we're at norwich arts center at the end of july green man festival will be in the einstein's garden science area then we'll be at if oxford the ideas and science festival there and we'll be back in london at the bill murray in september so do catch us around and you'll be able to hear all about my experience of taking part in a sex lab experiment which might be a bit too racy um but you can hear all about uh, the science of sexuality and well i the one one teaser i will tell you the control clip that they show you to calm you down between the erotica is a david attenborough nature documentary what one with some action in it as in (laughs) no because david attenborough is fabled for showing that isn't he no it was quite a calming uh clip and they don't they don't sort of measure your sexual arousal during that (laughs) sadly liberty let's come back to you There's a question here. This person says, we're being told we need to protect our oceans, but they're a massive space, so how on earth are we supposed to protect something meaningfully that's that big? It's a very good question and a very daunting task. As you say, it's something that's also thrown about a lot more in the media. People are talking about it. Everyone's becoming a bit more environmentally aware, particularly for our oceans, which definitely suffer with the sort of out of sight, out of mind situation. And also, as you said, the fact that it covers 71% of our planet, it's a very big space to try and monitor. 
I think a huge answer to that is actually coming from the technology space. I'm a really big believer in having collaboration between sectors and between countries. If we're going to solve a problem that big, you need to have collaboration. And I really think that um, AI and unmanned technology has got a really big role to play here because fundamentally AI can accelerate our ability to understand ocean dynamics, collect data. And again, that data can have all sorts of applications and it has all sorts of weird and wonderful use cases from sort of being able to be applicable for processing habitat mapping data, um, which allows us to do so more quickly to understand what's actually there because we can't protect it if we don't know what's there. Also to produce models for you know populations. And uh, there's one particularly weird and wonderful I saw was um, illegal fishing and bycatch presents a real issue and for sustainability and fish stocks. And this basically using AI and cameras on boats instead of having human observers, which is also historically quite a dangerous job depending on who you're doing it for, this provides a technology that basically will figure out and identify species that have been brought onto deck on which undoubtedly at some point will be a protected species or too much of something and and this technology can actually identify that quicker and faster for us which again it's all just saving people power because otherwise it's difficult to do it on that mass. It sounds like technology might be riding to our rescue let's hope it comes in time. On the subject of a changing world a changing planet I love this question Phil that Roger sent in It's perfect for you. He says, can we spread all of the old silicate-rich mining spoil heaps from the Industrial Revolution all over the ground so they weather and they'll absorb carbon dioxide from the air and hopefully offset some of the greenhouse effect? Is he he right? Can that happen? Well, it sounds completely crazy, but it's not. Actually, it is it is something that people are definitely looking at. There's a, a phenomenon called enhanced weathering. So basically, certain types of rock, silicate rocks like basalt uh, and olivine, carbon dioxide from the air dissolves in water on the surface, so either in rain or in the sea, whatever. That makes carbonic acid. It makes slightly acidic water. That acidic water can then start to dissolve the rocks uh, and weather them away. That's a natural process of weathering. And as it does that, it creates carbonate. So it makes carbonate rocks elsewhere, uh, or it dissolves the carbonate into the water, which goes into the ocean and actually reduces the acidity of the ocean, which could also be a good thing. So if we can speed that process up, we can make it, uh, we can turn it into a way of absorbing CO2. To speed it up, you basically increase the surface area of the rocks. So you grind them up very fine and you spread them out over farmland or over the beaches or anything like that. So there's people doing experiments with olivine, which is a a magnesium silicate mineral. It's green. And they grind it up and they spread it on bits of the beach and see what happens. See if it absorbs, see how fast it weathers, see how fast it uh, absorbs CO2, where it ends up. Uh, But equally, there's people doing it on farmland and because of the way it weathers there, it can end up adding nutrients to the soil. So has all sorts of benefits. Whether we can do that with slag from mines and whatever, it's entirely possible. The, the risk that you have there is what else is in those slags. So maybe there's other metals, maybe there's you know arsenic, all sorts of contaminants. These materials are not homogeneous. There's lots of different places where we've had slag from different processes or mine tailings from different mines. There may well be some of those that are uh, suitable for doing this kind of thing. The other side of this, obviously, is to do that, you have to smash the rocks up really small, and that takes energy. So how much energy is associated with grinding the rocks up? Does that offset how much co2 you're going to absorb how fast that process is going to happen so there's lots of things going on but it's not a completely crazy idea
It's a tough question. Possibly another tough question for you, Tom. Uh, I'm going to start by playing you an excerpt, actually, if I may, of a chat I had recently with Dame Sally Davies. Now, she was England's chief medical officer between 2010 and 2019. When I spoke to her, we we described this as the best escape that anyone's ever made because she stepped down from the job literally days before COVID was was announced. So she said, yep, that was definitely dodged a bullet there. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on the subject um, that, that she discusses. It's about the problem of superbugs and antibiotic resistance and, and some of the key reasons that we're currently confronting this challenge. The way we pay for antibiotics, that most of them are what are called generics. They're made by companies, often in India, very well. They do the trick, unless there's um, bacterial resistance. But they're so cheap that it means that health systems, not just ours but around the world, are not used to paying enough money for new drugs that it's worth the companies making them. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Sally Davis because we're going to launch a new series. It's going to be called Legends of Science and that will be coming to all our platforms. But in the meantime, Tom, she's saying we've got very good at producing antibiotics and in some senses that's now harming our health system. So do you think phages, your pet topic and the subject of your new book, do you, do you think that they could make a difference? Yeah, so it's it's not feasible to just keep making more antibiotics to solve this issue. So as Dame Sally mentions, there's this lack of commercial interest at the moment, which is a real problem. But even if we do get new antibiotics coming online soon, resistance will emerge to those antibiotics really quickly too, because we're just using too many of them. They're being flushed out into our waterways, they're in hospitals, clinics. So we really need completely new ideas and approaches And in my book, I talk about this idea of using the natural enemy of bacteria, which are phages, the viruses that infect bacteria. And what's neat about phages is that they're exquisitely well-evolved to kill bacteria. They do this amazing thing where they sense the bacteria, land on it like a little kind of lunar lander on the outside of it, inject their genes into the bacteria, essentially hijacking the bacterial cell to become a virus factory. And then when the bacteria is full of cloned viruses, uh, the virus issues this final command for the bacterial cell to kill itself and pop itself open. And so releasing all these viruses like out. Like a party balloon full of glitter. Yes, <laughs> but kind of horrible and icky and viral. But yeah, um, I mean, I'm sure if you're suffering from a drug-resistant infection and these phages start working... Uh, it would be like a celebratory uh, balloon popping full of glitter. It really does save lives, doesn't it? Because we had on this programme the scientists who helped a young lady who had cystic fibrosis yeah. and was suffering from a, a disseminated infection with a particular f- bug a bit like TB yeah. that had gone all over her body and it was resistant to all the antibiotics we had. Yeah. And they found some bacteriophages that they gave to her and saved her life. Yeah, and I think... I think I know the case you're talking about. And one of the phages that was used in that case was found on a rotten aubergine in Cape, in someone's compost heap in Cape Town. So that's another thing that's very cool about using phages is they are absolutely everywhere. There's trillions of them probably in this room as we speak. And, you know, you can find them in sewers or a stream or a lake. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, wherever you find nasty bacteria, you find potentially medically useful phages so we'll go from this situation where we might spend years and years developing a chemical antibiotic but actually 
it is possible to also just pluck a virus out of a sewer and and use that as an antibiotic, which um, you know is uh, it gives us hope for this very scary crisis of drug resistance that we're facing. One of the first guests we had when I first started making radio programs was a gentleman who was trying to tackle MRSA. Mm. And he'd made a nose spray that could spray bacteriophages into the nose to decolonize a person yeah. before they went into hospital for an operation. And he told me the Ganges in India is one of the best places to get water samples for bacteriophages because it's so polluted. There's so many different bacteria in there. You can find any phage you like living in there. Yeah, it's a wonderful introduction to the book, actually. We're talking about this river that's known as a holy river with this cleansing cleansing spirit and and people in india feel i mean they they go on pilgrimages to the ganges and they wash in they bathe in the ganges which is absolutely full of the worst bacteria on the planet but that this idea that it can heal people has remained for centuries and some people think that it's because it's actually full of these viruses that can prevent diseases so interestingly epidemics that should go downstream through the ganges kind of stop or they go upstream instead. And it's thought that's because of this kind of protective properties of, of the, all the bacteriophages and viruses found in that, in that water. It could just be the people who survive the experience are so fit and they're so healthy that nothing's going to kill them. So it could, it could be that too. It could be survival bias, couldn't it? Well, that's where we have to leave it for this week. We've run out of time, but thanks very much for listening and for sending in your questions. Thanks to our panel too, who are biologist Tom Ireland. His book, The Good Virus, is out now. Marine scientist Liberty Denman, she hosts the Out of Our Bubble podcast. Philip Broadwith is a writer for Chemistry World magazine. You can read his work over there. And comedian Rosie Wilby. You have to go and see her show, which is called The Breakup Monologues. It's touring the UK at the moment. Next time, the sensitive topic of depression is the subject of our deep dive. What do we know about it? And will new psychedelic treatments turn out to be effective? We'd like to hear your thoughts. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.